It's Storming the Court with Ryan Connell. Welcome into this edition of Storming the Court. Today is Friday, December 11th, episode 5 of Storming the Court. Another solid week in college hoops. Kentucky is off to a horrendous start. Coach K is questioning whether the season should continue. Number one Gonzaga versus number two Baylor was postponed. And Kansas State lost to a previously winless Division II school at home by double digits. But we start where we do every week and take a look back at what the week was in college hoops. And we'll start with that cancellation of the best game of the season. Number one Gonzaga and number two Baylor on Saturday December 5th, called off 90 minutes prior to tip-off. There were positive tests, multiple positive tests within the Gonzaga program, which is now on pause. Both teams still want this game to happen, but it could not happen on December 5th at Baker's Life Fieldhouse in Indianapolis between the number one team in the country, Gonzaga, and the number two team in the nation, the Baylor Bears. So where do they go from here? If they both want this to continue, Scott Drew and Mark Few issued a statement after the game together saying that they're going to try to make something happen with this game, but where can they fit it in? Obviously, this season, schedules have been adjusted countless times, and it seems that even something like this, 90 minutes prior to tip-off, the game can be changed. There were reports that said that Gonzaga knew about this on Friday night, but were waiting to confirm the results and talk with Baylor on Saturday morning, in which they did, and the game was officially called off around a little after 11 a.m. Eastern time before the 1 o'clock tip. But both both teams have some openings in their schedule. They both play home games on December 21st and December 29th, and no games in between. Both of all four of those games, so two games for Gonzaga and two games for Baylor, are with teams in very low major conferences, barely on the fringe of Division One level. So, would they be willing to cancel some of those games, which are put on the schedule as buy games to try and pay the those smaller schools to come and play? One of those games for Baylor's against Arkansas Pine Bluff. So, say for example, do you call Arkansas Pine Bluff up? and say, hey, we will still pay you whatever, 20 grand or to not show up to our place on December 29th because we want to schedule a game against Gonzaga instead. If you're Arkansas Pine Bluff in that instance, do you just save yourself the travel, save yourself the expenses, take maybe a little bit less, or maybe Baylor is willing to offer the same buy, a, buy out that they were originally going to offer you to come and play, That is all to be discussed from athletic department to athletic department. So if they call and say, hey, we want to cancel this game, you most likely take it, which leaves a bigger window for Gonzaga and Baylor to play because obviously between December 21st and 29th is Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. The NBA is slated to return. If they're going to schedule this game, they want national television to be there. And you can't just say, hey, we're going to schedule a game and then pitch it to the networks. The networks have to be in on the conversation. So you want to give them a bigger time frame to work around because especially you don't want this game trapped on, say, Christmas Day in the midst of five NBA games. 
You'd rather this game be on the 28th of December or 29th of December and be the headlining event. You want this game to get the attention it deserves. So if you're Gonzaga and if you're Baylor, it's an easy call to blow off these buy games, open up the window greater to where you guys have a larger range to deal with. And maybe it's the 21st because you guys were supposed to play a game that day. Maybe it's the 29th because you were both supposed to have a game that day. Maybe it's somewhere in between. And if neither of those happens because they can't get something adjusted and they can't work with the networks to get the game on TV there, then there's openings in January when both teams move into conference play to try and make that happen either during the week or around work around the schedule in some capacity. But I'd say that there's a very healthy chance that this game is played but it might just not be the matchup we wanted to see when it was number one versus number two. The rankings can certainly stay the same, but they're more likely than not going to change because that's how rankings work. But if this game is played in January and they're not number one versus number two, it will still be a phenomenal matchup of two teams with legit Final Four potential. So however it shakes out, Gonzaga and Baylor did not get to play last Saturday, but there is a very good chance they will be playing either later this month or in the season ahead. So that's Gonzaga Baylor. That's checked off the list. Kansas State, as I mentioned, lost to a previously winless Division II school at home by double digits. And to me, this is one of the more, I guess, underlying storylines, something that's kind of got, got hidden amongst everything else that's been happening over the last week or so. And if you are Kansas State, I mean, this is just a slap in the face. This is a slap in the face that came on Tuesday night. Tuesday, December 8th, Kansas State loses at home 81-68 to to Fort Hayes State. Fort Hayes State. Fort Hayes State had six players in double digits, all five of their starting five, and their six men off the bench. They scored all six of those players, scored all 81 points. Kansas State, on the other hand, had just three players and double figures. And this is a bad look for Bruce Weber's team. Kansas State is expected to be one of the worst, if not the worst team in the, in the Big 12 this year. But losing at home to Fort Hayes State, who entered the game without a win, it is not even a Division I school on your home floor by double digits. This is just a bad, bad loss for Kansas State and for the bottom of the Big 12. Well, let's get into some of the other top 25 matchups over the last week. Some of the games we picked from a week ago. It was a great week for picks. Great week for picks here on the Storming the Court podcast. A perfect 4-0 record. Would have won 5, had a chance to go 5-0 if Michigan State and Virginia was not postponed on Wednesday night. But instead, nonetheless, we went 4-0. So we'll start with the first game of those, which was number 12, Villanova, at number 17, Texas, on Sunday. The Wildcats, 68 and the Longhorns, 64. A very competitive battle, but one that Villanova took control and never relinquished in this one. They never trailed at any point in the second half. Texas never had a shot to take the lead or tie the game. A pesky Texas team fought their way all the way back, but Villanova does the little things. They take care of the ball. 
They make free throws down the stretch. They limit your offensive opportunities. They rebound the basketball. And this was a clinic from Jay Wright's team on how you go on the road against a Power 5 school and a non-conference schedule and get a signature win that might be, by the end of the year, a top 10 caliber win in a season where games are changing every day. And your next opponent, you may not know if you're actually going to play them. It's important to get big wins, and this is Villanova's second win this season against a ranked team. They beat Arizona State back on Thanksgiving Day. A solid game from all parties in this one, but Jeremiah Robinson Earl, another impressive game. It seemed like he kind of took control, 19 points and 9 rebounds, one rebound shy of another double-double. Justin Moore had 19 points, which is also tied for the Villanova team high. They controlled the way that they wanted to play. In the first half, Texas really came out charging. They went on a 13-2 run in the middle of the first half, really seemed to blow this one open. But Villanova does what they do. They claw their way back. They stay within it. Robinson Earl had a key dunk in the first half. It was an and-one dunk with about three minutes left. Brought it to a two-point game. Villanova later took the lead on free throws at the end of the first half, and they never looked back. As I said before, that they never trailed at any point in the second half. Texas never had a shot to tie the game or take the lead. Every time Texas brought it to a two-point game, Villanova was either fouled and made free throws to make it a four-point game, or they went right down and they scored a bucket to make it a two-possession game. Every time Texas brought it to a one-possession game, they never had an offensive possession to tie the game or take the lead. That's how good Villanova was down the stretch, answering every time Texas tried to make a push. And then for Texas, Matt Coleman gave them the big lift, but they couldn't get over the hump. The Longhorns definitely are going to be a force in the Big 12. They're going to be right up there with Baylor and Kansas and West Virginia at the end of the season as the best teams in the Big 12. This was a chance for them to get a really good win on their home floor, and they come up just short. But credit to Jay Wright's squad, Jeremiah Robinson Earl, Justin Moore, Colin Gillespie, and the number 12 Villanova Wildcats for getting a four-point win on the road and an on-conference schedule over a ranked Texas team. Next game on the docket came on Tuesday night, part of a triple header on ESPN. This one was part of the Big 12 Big East battle, which was where the Villanova-Texas game was also a part of that matchup as well. Number 5, Kansas hosted number 8, Creighton. They win 73-72. At Fog Allen Fieldhouse, Marcus Zagorowski misses a free throw to tie the game with less than two seconds left. Kansas was able to help knock out the ball out of play. Creighton never got a shot after that missed free throw. And this is a matchup we should see on a more frequent basis. Get this. This is the first time that the Kansas Jayhawks have played the Creighton Blue Jays since the early 1970s. Creighton being located in Omaha, in Nebraska, one state over from Kansas, a team that's now been in the Big East for about five years, has been on the national level pretty much every season over the last 10 years, and this is the first time that these two schools have played each other since the 1970s. Definitely a matchup that I want to see and people around college basketball want to see as the years go on, and I think Bill Self and Greg McDermott are going to continue to make this happen, knowing that it could be a signature win for each of their respective teams 
as the season moves along. But if you look at this from a Kansas perspective, Jalen Wilson has been the best Jayhawk in the early going. It hasn't been Marcus Garrett. It hasn't been Ochai Abaji. It hasn't been David McCormick. It has been Jalen Wilson. Jalen Wilson, a redshirt freshman who sat out all of last last year coming back from injury. He was a top 50 player coming out of high school two years ago. But on the borderline of being a top 50 guy, he was up in the 40s in recruiting rankings. Bill Self calls him the forgotten man. That's a very appropriate title for Jalen Wilson. In the preseason, we talked about how could David McCormick fill in for Yudoka Azubuki. Mitch Lightfoot was going to help him out in that regard. Obviously, Marcus Garrett, the preseason and reigning defensive player of the year. Ochai Abaji was going to help carry the scoring load. Nobody was talking about Jalen Wilson in the preseason. Not me, who said that Kansas was one of my teams that was going to take a step back this year, maybe not be the caliber Kansas team that they were of years past. That still can be true. But I made no mention of Jalen Wilson. I listened to plenty of other podcasts of people who work in the the industry, and there have been plenty of other articles written about some of the surprises in the early going of college basketball. And everyone's biggest surprise when they talk about Kansas is that Jalen Wilson has been their best player. Because everybody, and I mean everybody, has missed on Jalen Wilson going into the season. But now, the redshirt freshman proves yet again to have another good 20-point, 10-rebound performance against a quality-ranked team. He did it against Kentucky last week. He does it again against Creighton. He helps the Kansas Jayhawks get a win at home over a top-10 team, 73-72, on Tuesday. And the Marcus Zagorowski versus Marcus Garrett matchup was definitely good as advertised. Kansas really squeaked this one out. They tried to bail Creighton out by fouling Zagorowski in his shooting motion. He made the first two free throws. And then too much on the third one. Nobody could corral the rebound. Time expired, and that's how this game ended. But it was Wilson who hit the go-ahead three for Kansas, projected them into a spot to win the game. Zagorowski tried to answer, comes up short at the free throw line. But Creighton showed they can hang with a Kansas team who was tough on the defensive end in their home building with in front of 2,500 people in, in Fog Allen Fieldhouse. Yes, they had fans in Fog Allen Fieldhouse. Creighton is just a notch below Villanova as the best team in the Big East, but they're not as far behind as people think. The Blue Jays will be making some noise when Big East play gets underway, but it's Kansas that comes away with a key win over Creighton. Second game of the triple header on Tuesday. This one part of the ACC Big Ten Challenge. Number three, Iowa. Beats number 16, North Carolina, 93-80. to This was a statement win for the Iowa Hawkeyes. They found ways to win outside of Luca Garza. They were 17-40 of 40 from beyond the three-point line. That's good enough for 43%. Jordan Mohannon, seven made threes. Joe Wieskamp, five made threes. C.J. Frederick, five made threes. Garza, 16 points, 14 rebounds, four blocks. His lowest offensive output since January 7th, 2020. Yet the Hawkeyes still beat North Carolina by 13 points 
on their home floor with Luca Garza putting up just 16 points. This says a lot more about Iowa and that they're here to stay on the national level. Obviously, if you shoot 43% from three every game, it's going to be tough to beat you. You make 17 threes, the second most in school history. That's going to be tough to beat. I don't think that is necessarily consistent on a game-in and game-out basis, but if they can get any semblance of a 10 threes a game, 12 threes a game, shooting a good percentage, scoring from Bohannon, Wieskamp, Frederick, the McCaffreys, just any help to Luka Garza on a consistent basis, teams could take away Garza and Iowa can still win games. There are not going to be too many teams on Iowa's schedule that have as good of a front court as North Carolina. Garrison Brooks, Armando Baycott, both had their chances against Garza. They helped keep him in check. Garza got them into foul trouble, was able to exploit them a little bit in the second half, and it wasn't a great shooting day from Luka Garza. But he still managed to put up 16 points, grab 14 rebounds, and come away with four blocks and help his team to a 13-point win over a ranked North Carolina team. UNC, on the other hand, they still have some improvements that need to be made. It's going to be hard to win when the team you play sinks 17 three-pointers. North Carolina isn't known to be a great shooting team, and when a team that you're playing makes 17 threes against you, you need to have an answer. And the Tar Heels just didn't. UNC took the lead once during this game at 67-66. to That was their first lead in the second half. Iowa responded with a 14-0 run in which no points were scarred by Luca Garza to take the lead back by 13, and they never looked back. Iowa really dropped the hammer in this game. They put out the claim that they're just a one-man show. Iowa proved that it deserves to be in the top five conversation. Everyone said number three Iowa. That's a really high ranking for a team that has one great player. But Jordan Mohannon is like a sixty is a six-year point guard. Joe Wieskamp, a senior wing player. C.J. Frederick, an experienced upperclassman wing player. This team returned all five starters from a year ago. They didn't just return Luca Garza. They returned their entire starting lineup. They're better than they were last year. They still need to make some defensive adjustments. They gave up 80 points to North Carolina, and at times they were letting UNC just run up and down the floor on them and beating them in easy transition baskets. But they could score. I said last week this game was going to be determined in the 90s. Well, Iowa got to 91st, and they were the only team to get to 90. 93-80, to number 3 Iowa beats number 16 North Carolina. Last game on the docket for last week before we dive a little bit more into Kentucky and their horrendous start. And then what did Coach K have to say after Duke's loss to Illinois? Well, let's first talk about Duke's loss to Illinois. Number 6 Illinois goes into Cameron Indoor and knocks off number 10 Duke, 83-68. It's Duke's second loss in three games at Cameron Indoor Stadium. Second loss in their last three games at Cameron Indoor, all which have come in the last week. Illinois never trailed in this game. They were in complete control. Duke never was in this game to win it. As much as Iowa garnered respect by playing well without Luka Garza, the Illini deserve a big bump for what they did. They proved that they may be the best team in the Big Ten. 
they were able to not just be Io DeSumo. He led them in scoring, but they had six players in double figures and one more player with nine points. So they had seven guys with at least nine points, six of them with at least ten points. Defensively, they're much better than Iowa. They can keep pace offensively with just about anyone. Illinois is primed for a big year. And they showed that they can travel. And they can play games on the road in a tough environment. Obviously, Cameron Indoor is not the environment that we're used to. There are no Cameron crazies. But playing Duke on their home floor comes already at a disadvantage for an a road team. Think about it. If you're a road team and you have to go play Duke, they say you have to be almost 10 points better than Duke because of the crowd, the officials, and the slant that Duke has for the advantages of being at home. Well, what did Illinois do? They went out and won by 15, and they proved that Duke has some serious flaws. In Illinois, we could talk about for a long time in terms of what's their potential, how far can this team really go. Well, I'm going to say this. They are the best, the best team in the Big Ten. I think they're slightly better than Iowa. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about Duke falling to 2-2 two and two with losses to Michigan State and Illinois, both at Cameron Indoor. And their two wins are Coppin State and Bellarmine. Duke, outside of Matthew Hurt this season, has been in a world of trouble. Offensively, this team has no identity. They don't play half-court offense. Duke is a much better defensive team than they have been in years past, and a lot of times their defense is what translates to their offense because they work turnovers, they push in transition, they try and score easy buckets, and that works against Coppin State, and that works against Bellarmine. But that doesn't work against Michigan State. That doesn't work against Illinois. These are two experienced teams with the good backcourts who play in a tough conference, and are used to high-intensity defensive efforts. So, when Duke can't generate as many turnovers and turn that into easy points, that means they need to score in other ways. Well, Matthew Hurt shows that he can, you know, play, pick, and roll, get the ball in his hands, he can make stuff happen on his own, he can score 20 points a game pretty easily. But Wendell Moore, who many thought was going to take a big jump in the backcourt and be one of their leaders offensively, is all out of sorts. He has been horrendous the last few games. He just can't get anything going offensively. He didn't even start in this game. He played seven minutes, was 0 of 3 from the floor. That's where we're at with Wendell Moore. Last year, he played 25 games, averaged 24 minutes a night, scored just under 8 points a game, shot 41%. This year, through four games, is averaging 21 minutes, Shooting just 23% from the floor and averaging under five minutes or five points per game. Five points per game. If we look at what he's done so far this season, against Illinois, 0 for 3 in seven minutes. Against Bellarmine, a newly crowned Division I school, 1 of 7 in 20 minutes. And then against Michigan State last Tuesday, he played 30 minutes. It was 0 of 9 from the floor. So in his last three games, he's 1 of 19. That's against number 6 Illinois, 
number eight Michigan State, and Bellarmine, a new program in Division I college basketball. He is having an awful start to the season. Jalen Johnson had 19 points, 19 rebounds, was a statement in his debut against Coppin State. Since then, he has just disappeared. He had 19 points and 19 rebounds versus Coppin State in his three games since. 11 points on 4 of 11 shooting in 22 minutes against Michigan State. Then the next game against Bellarmine, 15 minutes of action, 9 points, 4 of 6 from the field, 3 rebounds. Against a team that is new to Division One, but he only did play 15 minutes. And then against Illinois, 23 minutes of action, 3 of 10 from the floor, 7 points, and 7 rebounds. So was that one game of 19 points, 19 rebounds, a perfect 8 from the eight from the floor in 35 minutes against Coppin State, just a fluke? Based on the way the other three games have gone, yes. And then the further you go down the Duke bench, you get to Joey Baker and DJ Stewart and Jeremy Roach, and it just doesn't get any better. This team has no half-court offense and no consistent offensive output. I didn't think Duke was going to be as good as they've been the last two or three years. I didn't think Duke was going to be this anemic offensively. This is a new low when it comes to offensive production that I just didn't see the Duke Blue Devils drop to. And if we're talking about anemic offenses and a team that needs a serious lift, well, look no further than the other true blue blood in the Kentucky Wildcats. They lose yet again, this time to the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets. Last week I talked about consent. Kentucky was in some serious trouble. They falter again to Georgia Tech. They're 1-3 for the first time ever under John Calipari. Duke is now 2-2. Two two. Kentucky is now 1-3. Both have two losses over their first four games since the first time since 1967. 1967 is the last time that both of these teams had at least two losses in their first four games. That was after both of them made the Final Four and after Kentucky famously lost the 1966 National Championship to, at the time, Texas Western, which is now UTEP. In the famous movie, Glory Road, Texas Western, the first team ever to start five African-American players in the Final Four and in the National Championship. So Kentucky and Duke have two losses in their first four games since 1967. Wildcats have so many issues to correct. That self could take up 20 minutes of the show. If you want to hear more about Kentucky being inept and some of their struggles. I touched on that in last week's episode. Go ahead and take a listen to that. I'm going to just mention one other point to them before we get to Coach K and his remarks on this season when it relates back to Duke and college basketball as a whole. Kentucky has no leaders. They have no guards. Their best player coming into the year was Olivier Saar, a transfer who had one year of eligibility left, who's a four-year center who went to Wake Forest. And you think about players at Kentucky. And what's the standard at Kentucky? Five-star recruits, players that are going to jump in and make an immediate impact, maybe stay for two years at the most, three years if you're lucky, and move on and make the jump to the NBA. So if Olivier Saar is going to be a fourth or fifth year player, is just finally getting to Kentucky. That means he wasn't good enough each of the last couple of years 
to play and get to the level of playing at Kentucky. If he wasn't good enough to be here as a freshman, as a sophomore, as a junior, why would he be good enough to be here as a fifth-year player with an extra year of eligibility and to be one of your best players? Because that's not the Kentucky standard. And he doesn't fit the mold. He's a back-to-the-basket player with limited range and limited athletic upside. That's not what John Calipari recruits in a big man. Carl Anthony Towns, Anthony Davis, Willie Cauley-Stein, DeMarcus Cousins. He is not really like any of them. And if you go back a couple years, they brought in a graduate transfer like Reid Travis, who underperformed a little bit, but still averaged close to a double-double and was able to stretch the floor. Olivier Saar is a true seven-foot back-to-the-basket player who doesn't stretch the floor, who has limited rebounding capabilities, limited athletic upside, and if he wasn't good enough to be there the first few years that he was in college, which makes you think he's going to be good enough to be there at this point? He doesn't. The writing's on the wall. Kentucky just isn't a good team. They're going to have to figure a lot of things out. Some of these freshmen are going to take either big steps forward, and this is going to prove to pay off in the end for John Calipari, or this team is going to flop like a fish. The schedule doesn't get much easier. They finally get closer to SEC play. But Kentucky, now 1-3 in their first four games, the first time that's ever happened under John Calipari, and it's the first time that both Duke and Kentucky have two-plus losses in their first four games since 1967. All right, hold up, hold up, hold up. Before we go any further, Duke has officially canceled their non-conference schedule for the remainder of the 2020-2021 college basketball season. The next little segment here was recorded before that announcement. I'm going to touch on the announcement, some reaction, some comments from other coaches after it, but check out this before the news came out on Thursday night. So let's get to the elephant in the room. After Tuesday's loss to Illinois, Duke head coach Mike Krzyzewski came out and was questioning whether or not we should be playing college basketball this season because of health concerns, the COVID-19, global pandemic. There are a lot of reasons why college athletics probably shouldn't be played. And he has a point. Obviously, we are making college athletes who don't make money, who are only on athletic scholarships, Basically, essential workers, as Jay Billis have pointed out on the Duke Illinois broadcast, who get tested every day, who are stuck in quarantine playing basketball, who are taken away from their families over the holiday season, who are stuck on campus only together, traveling on the dime of the university at a time where Health officials are advising people not to travel across the country. They're traveling freely across the country just to play games for other people's enjoyment. And I agree. I think there were better ways to handle how about going about this season, but the NCAA didn't want to focus on conference-only scheduling. They didn't want to play their whole year in a bubble, but they basically are. And Coach K kind of points that out after the game, and that's kind of his premise for it, is what are we doing? Why are we doing this? But where this gets really ironic is that Duke and Coach Mike Krzyzewski were on the front line saying that we need to play this season. We need to play because we need an NCAA tournament. Without an NCAA tournament this year, 
the NCAA would be forced to make major cuts across all college athletics that would be detrimental to institutions nationwide. And Coach K was on the front line saying, we need to play, we need to play, we need to play, we need to have an NCAA tournament this year. Now all of a sudden, his team's off to a bad start. They don't look to like they're getting any better. And he's out there questioning, I don't know, I don't think this is right. I don't know if we should really be playing. And he's even said in his quote that people are going to take this the wrong way and say that I'm just trying to make excuses for my team and that, that I, 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 that's not what I'm trying to do. I know we need to get better. That's what he did say. And I give him credit for at least acknowledging that. But at the same time, this is the guy that wanted to get everybody in the NCAA tournament. As much as he said we needed to play, we need to let everyone in regardless. Meaning that he wasn't confident going into the year that his team was going to be good enough to make the NCAA tournament. I still think they're going to. They're just kind of in a bad rut. They just might not be a ranked team, but they have a good enough at-large resume. But he was pushing for, let's let in the teams that should be in. The schools that we think are going to be good. Let's make sure that everybody gets involved. We need to play. We need to play. We need to play. I understand his perspective. Being over 70 years old in a high-risk category, as someone who can really face the grunt of COVID-19 head-on if he were to in any way, shape, or form encounter the virus. But he had the option to sit out this year and not coach if he didn't want to. He had the option to not travel. And they've been playing only home games so far, so they've locked out in that regard. He had the option to agree to some of the games that they have to agree to. He's not trying to make an excuse for his team. Although that is a way you can really prod and turn it. But for a guy that was such a cheerleader on why this season is so important and why we need to play, why we need to play, why we need to play, is now retracting that and is now questioning why should we be playing? Is it right to be playing? Do we really need to run these kids out there and play a game? Well, Coach K, you wanted us to play. So we ran out there and we played. We are underperforming. You aren't off to a great start. But you can't change your tune. I, th- I agree. There are better ways to handle the situation. But the NCAA is put in place the way that they're going to play. And you were a big proponent of playing the game of basketball. It was much needed for this sport and for the NCAA at large. Now that you're in the thick of it, now you want to change your opinion? When did you care about the health and safety of your players before the season when you said we had to play, we had to play, we had to play? Where did you care about all the precautions that needed to be met? The chance that your team would have to be sidelined for a couple weeks. Where were you thinking of those things when the decision was made to play a season? And Maybe that wasn't on the forefront of your mind. Maybe you just wanted to so much just to get back out there and do your job as a basketball coach, and encourage these kids to go out and play a game that they enjoy. And that's well and good. But now you're starting to think about the drawbacks of playing a collegiate basketball season in the middle of a global pandemic. Maybe that's where you should have started before we got to this point. Because now we're in the season, there is no turning back. The NCAA already had the NCAA tournament canceled last year. They're going to avoid everything they can to make sure that doesn't happen again this year. And now you're going out to start questioning whether we should be playing or not? Maybe you should have thought about that before you were so hoorah, hoorah, let's play. Maybe you should have thought about what it means for your safety, your family's safety, 
your coaching staff, your players. Maybe you should have thought more about just going out there and trying to win basketball games. You should have thought about all this before the season. And maybe it wasn't evident to you before the season that you're gonna, there were going to be so many hurdles. There were going to be so many things that you had to abide by, and there were going to be so many rules and tough things. But you're playing in the middle of a global pandemic. This wasn't going to be just roll the balls out there and let's play basketball. You just thought it was going to be easier than it was. And you were wrong. So now you want to question that? You want to question what the NCAA is doing? I think that would have been fair to do before the season started. But since you were such a big proponent of playing this year, you're just flip-flopping your statement in the middle of the season. I get it. You can have a change of heart and opinion. And you're in, you can be informed in a lot of different ways. But to turn and do a full 180 like that in the middle of the season because you don't want to play because your team's off to a bad start and oh, now you're starting to think about the health and safety of your players, maybe that's what you should have thought of first. Maybe that's what you should have thought of first. I'm not saying what he's saying is wrong by any means. I think he is very entitled to have that opinion. It's just to me, it's a slap in the face to his players, to his fellow coaches, that he was a guy that was so proponent on playing, 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 and now that they're in the season and now he has all these questions because now he cares about their safety. Where was that at the beginning of the year? And all the planning that led up to this year, where was the comments that say, should we really be doing this? It's just a weird timing for them to come out after they've lost their second game just four games into the season. That's all I'm saying. It's just a weird time for him to question the season when he didn't have anything negative to say in the preseason. So to reiterate, Duke has officially canceled the rest of their non-conference schedule for the 2020-2021 college basketball season. As I said before, that little segment there was recorded Thursday afternoon prior to the announcement late on Thursday night. Now that this is official, here is some reaction on the matter. So Duke is not going to play a non-conference game the rest of the year. They will be playing their ACC opener against Notre Dame next week and then be pausing activities for the holiday season. They're going to be sending their team home. What does that mean that they're just not going to play non-conference games? When they say, when you put it that way, they're going to cancel the rest of their non-conference games. They only had one non-conference game remaining currently on the schedule. They did have two other games that were postponed that they were going to try to schedule later in the year and make up. So they're not going to do those. But they only had one more game before their ACC opener that's getting canceled. So before we go ahead and start crowning Coach K for this revolutionary thinking that he is you know, on the cutting edge of making a great decision, and I'm not saying his decision is right nor wrong, I'm saying the way that it's being construed that they're canceling the rest of their non-conference season makes it sound like they're just not going to play a game for months. That's just not true. They only have one non-conference game remaining on their current schedule, and that was Gardner-Webb, where they were supposed to play on Saturday. They had postponements against Charleston Southern and Elon that they were going to try and make up. They're not even going to put in any effort to try and make those games up. But when we go around and say they're canceling the rest of their non-conference schedule, 
Let's not make it seem like they had a bunch of teams lined up to play here. That's the first thing. The second is what also surfaced after, uh, before the announcement became official that Duke was postponing the rest of their non-conference games. But Alabama head coach Nate Oates was asked about the matter of whether we should be playing. Kind of the idea that Coach K threw out there after the loss on Tuesday night to Illinois. And he didn't hold back with what he said. He kind of, you know, got the question and turned it around and said, would Coach K be saying this if they'd, if they'd lost two games already in the non-conference? And he directed the question back at the reporter, and he said, what do you think? And they said, probably not. He probably wouldn't be raising this issue. And he goes, all right, I didn't say it, but that's right. So Coach K just got called out by a head coach at another Power 5 program, and Alabama head coach Nate Oates. And Oates went on to say some other kind of outstanding things about COVID-19, the pandemic at large, and how it's important to play basketball. And you could kind of take what he said with a grain of salt, but the fact that he was going public and willing to put it out there with his name attached to it, that basically he says the reason Duke is doing this is because they're off to a bad start. You just don't see that in college basketball. You don't see the rivalry and the calling out and blatant, I wouldn't say slander, but pretty much slander against especially Duke and Coach K from other coaches around the NCAA. Nobody really has the cojones to call out Duke and Coach K. Nate Oates did not hold back, and he basically said if Duke had not lost two of their first four non-conference games, they wouldn't be in this spot of wanting the season to be put on hold. Let's get into a little bit more to the what Duke decided to do. As I said before, and you heard in that little rant there before, I respect the uh, opinion of Coach K on the matter. But why is it now all of a sudden that he's starting to care? That's the part that I keep coming back to over and over again, is why does he care now? Why didn't he care six months from uh, since six months ago when trying to discuss how the season was going to play out? He raised some concerns but never took it to the next level. Why did he let his team start to begin practices? Why did he let his team start to playing start playing games? Why did he let other teams come and travel to Cameron Indoor to play them if he wasn't okay with the matter? Now you're four games in, multiple weeks into the college basketball season, and now you have a problem? Where was that questioning? Where was that intrigue of was this the right thing to do leading up to the season? Where was that reason to start caring for his players, for his coaches, for his own well-being, for the well-being of the university, the amount of money they were going to spend on resources to try and make this as safe as it could be. Why is it all of a sudden now that he's starting to care? But one of the things that Coach K did say when they released that they were going to cancel the rest of the non-conference season, he did say Duke was going to allow their student-athletes to go home, to spend time with their family, to get to enjoy the holidays. And that's good. That's a that's a that's a good on you. I still think that, you know, kid, kids should have the option too and shouldn't be stuck necessarily quarantined on campus and being able to spend months and months away from, you know, their family, their friends and everything else just for the enjoyment of others. I'm for that. Since the NCAA doesn't pay their student athletes outside of a scholarship, yeah, they should have some flexibility on what they're able to do. But in the middle of a global pandemic, is traveling really the best, you know, 
thing for them to do, whether it be for games or for practices or just to go home to see their family. Because now Coach K is advocating for no travel. He thinks it's safer for his team not to play games. Yet then he's going to dismiss his team and let them travel on their own accord to go home and see their families. Isn't that counterproductive to the point that you just made that you don't want to travel, you want to keep your players safe, you want to make sure that we aren't doing anything to put our student-athletes at risk, but then are saying, hey, by the way, you guys can leave, and then you just come back whenever you're ready, about a week or so later, and we'll go from there and we'll pick it back up again. They're advising you not to travel in the first place, and that's why you don't want to travel to play games to practice, and you don't think that the sport should be continuing, then to dismiss that and just let your student-athletes travel at will seems a little naive. It seems like you didn't really think out what you just said. I think they should have the ability to go home, but the optics of saying, hey, we're not playing because we don't want to travel, we don't want to do this, and then turning your back and saying, hey, by the way, go travel and do what you want on your own. Just what what are you doing? And I don't want these athletes to be stuck on campus, cooped up. But the alternative to traveling and not being held to the strict protocols of being on campus, not being able to monitor their health as closely while away from Duke, actually probably puts them in a worse spot. Now you let them go away, now they come back. Who'd they encounter when they were home? Were they they following the same guidelines that they're held to here on campus? You have 15 kids, how many people, so they go home to their family of four or five who interact with, you know, 10 other people from work, who those people interact with the four people in their family, and it goes on and on and on, and then eventually your bubble is not a bubble anymore. And they're going to have to reestablish once they get back on campus, produce negative tests, kind of quarantine together, and start the process all over again, which is understandable, but you're inducing a higher risk to the situation by letting them travel, letting them go out on their own, and do their own thing. Again, I think they should have the option to do that. I'm just saying the way that it's presented here by Duke, they're saying, hey, we don't want to do this for basketball. We don't think they should be playing games. We don't want them to be stuck and cooped up and held to these high restrictions. So we're going to let them go out on their own and do the same thing. And then we're going to reconvene in a couple weeks and then start back up and then jump into that bubble process, quarantine, and be on campus and stuck together for conference play in just a few weeks. It seems like they're just trying to make things look right, and they're trying very hard to do the right thing, and I commend them for that, but every time they try to do the right thing, they leave a reason out there to discredit what they're doing. Again, there is no good way to handle playing basketball in the middle of a global pandemic. The NCAA has decided to go fully in on the season regardless of the outcome. They want to play an NCAA tournament. They want to trug on. It isn't going to be pretty. We've established that. But let's not go around crowning Coach K and Duke for his outstanding work. Remember, he was one of the biggest advocates for college basketball to be played and that the the necessity of the NCAA tournament had to be played this season. Now he doesn't want to finish out the rest of the non-conference schedule. He thinks it's important for his players to go home to see their families. I agree with that. But everything he says is contradicting everything that he stood for in the offseason. And you can change your opinion and you can flip your script and you can have a change of heart. 
But why does he start to care now when months leading up to the season, weeks of practice, first few weeks of games, there was no comments about it? Now you're off to a poor start. Now you're trying to do right for your players. Where was the effort? Where was the passion? Where was the thought of caring when it mattered most? Duke has officially decided to cancel the rest of their non-conference games for the remainder of the season. They'll play their ACC opener next week, take a little bit of time off for the holidays. So that's the matter. I teased it before that Duke, Coach K, were questioning the season. I recorded a segment. He was still questioning the season. Thursday night, it comes out. They're going to cancel the non-conference season. That's where we are today. That's the week that was in college. Hoops, Kentucky is in a dreadful place. Coach K is questioning whether or not we should really be playing these games. Is he right? Is he wrong? I went 4-0 on my picks last week. Villanova, Illinois, Iowa, and Kansas all came through for me. Number one versus number two, Baylor-Gonzaga called off. There was a lot that happened in college hoops last week. There are a couple more things to get to for this week. Let's look ahead to this week's slate real quick. We're going to just do three games to preview. We'll start on Sundays. Number 19, Richmond travels to number 11, West Virginia. Richmond has been playing some impressive ball in the early going. Five players averaging double digits in points. They play defense. They already have a win over an AP top 10 team when they won at Kentucky two weeks ago. The tandem of Nathan Cayo and Jacob Gilliard might be one of the Two best players that nobody's talking about and nobody knows in the country. Gilliard is a point guard and a true beast, averaging over 12 points a game, 7 assists per game, and a staggering 4.5 steals per game. This guy is a force on the defensive end. We we saw what he could do against Kentucky and turn them over. Him versus the WVU guards is a matchup to really hone in on. But will the interior depth and the style of play of West Virginia put any pressure on Richmond. I think it will. I think West Virginia has a very, very favorable matchup in the post with Derek Culver and Oscar Shibway. They'll look to terrorize the interior, but I think the pressure that Gilliard and Kayo put on the guards for West Virginia is going to be where this game is won or lost. Gilliard's quick hands, when he doubles down in the post, say Culver gets it on the left block, Gilliard comes in, he could come in and easily scoop that out from underneath of him. So I think as much as that West Virginia has such an advantage on the interior, if Richmond is able to switch to double in the post and pressure so much on the ball, it's going to force West Virginia to make shots on the perimeter. I don't think West Virginia is good enough to make shots on the perimeter. I think that Richmond's team defense, Gilliard's leadership, his poise with the basketball, his decision-making on both the offensive and defensive end, I think Richmond pulls off another stunner and they knock off West Virginia. Second game, also on Sunday. It's a Big 12 opener, so we're already getting into conference play. Number 13, Texas, travels to Waco to play number 2, Baylor. And this one, to me, is a continuation for Baylor on where they are going to pick up. They rolled Illinois pretty well about a week and a half ago. Their game against Gonzaga gets canceled. They're playing a bunch of these smaller mid-major level teams, which is kind of giving them as tune-ups and tune-ups. But I think they are too strong for Texas 
especially on their home floor. Texas, as I mentioned, is a pesky team. They'll fight all the way to the end, and I think they've adopted the way that Shaka Smart really wants to coach, which is pressure the ball, play intense on defense, score offensively, push the pace, and play with tempo. But I think Baylor can get up and down with anybody. They have a the better the better backcourt. They have the better players. They have the better coach. Scott Drew is a better coach than Shaka Smart. I don't think I think this game is close in terms of score, but I don't think it's ever in doubt for Baylor to win this game. I'll take the Bears at home against the Longhorns. And the final game also comes in the Big 12, and this will be next Thursday, night number five, Kansas on the road at number 17, Texas Tech. Texas Tech has really played some ugly, ugly games so far. The game against Houston was one thing. They've That's their one loss this year. They haven't had a signature win. Mac McClung transfer from Georgetown, one of their better players. Marcus Santos Silva, grad transfer from VCU. Good interior presence. Chris Beard is still trying to find an identity for his team. Kansas, on the other hand, it's next man up. Marcus Garrett, Ochai Abaji, the emergence of Jalen Wilson. Bill Self has a good team, and playing Texas Tech on the road is going to be a challenge, but I don't think it is one that they can't handle. However, the thing that I like in this game is that Texas Tech has been so good defensively. I know they haven't played great teams, but Sam Houston State, 52 points against. Houston only scored 64 points against them and won. They held Troy to 46 points, Grambling to 40, Abilene Christian to 44. Chris Beer's defense is really, really tough. And Kansas can match that intensity with their own defensive structure and style of play. I think this is a game that barely cracks 60. This is definitely going to be an ugly one. But there's something about this one where I think Texas Tech finally breaks through. I like McClung. I like Santos Silva. I think Kyler Edwards has a big game. And I just don't trust Kansas enough. If Jalen Wilson has been their best player in the early going, and Bill Self labels him as the forgotten man, and if Ochai Abaji and Marcus Garrett were supposed to carry this offense, and they've disappeared, what happens when in the game that Jalen Wilson finally doesn't play well? Then who steps up? Is it David McCormick? Is it Christian Brown? I just still think there's a lot of question marks offensively for Kansas. And by no means is Texas Tech a sound team. I just think their defense has the ability to match up with Kansas so well that they can squeak out a win on their home floor against a better team. I'm going to take Texas Tech to pull off the upset over number 5 Kansas next Thursday. So to recap, my picks last week went 4-0. and I'm now 6-3 and on the season. I had Villanova, Kansas, Iowa, and Illinois last week. The Michigan State-Virginia game was canceled. I did like Smarty over the Cavaliers in that one. This week, I have number 19, Richmond, over number 11, West Virginia. Number 2, Baylor, beats number 13, Texas at home. And number 17, Texas Tech, knocks off number 5, Kansas, in their own building. That'll do it for this episode of Storming the Court. Please make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are found. Give us a five-star review. Let us know what you think of the product we're bringing to you each and every week. If there's anything else you want to hear on the show, let me know. Love to hear some feedback on what everybody thinks. 
You follow me on Twitter at Rye underscore Cunnell. That's R-Y underscore C-O-N-N-E-L-L. Thanks again for listening. Please share the show with anyone who may be interested. Enjoy the college troops, and I'll talk to you again next week.